Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today I have with me Tamisha. Did I say it right? Yes. Okay, good. I get brownie points for that, right? <laughs> and Adrian with me. Um, and uh, Tamisha is a uh, foster parent, her and her husband, and Adrian is their biological child that has grown up in the home and and um, had interaction with some of these kids that have come through. And so I, I'm glad to have you both here and uh, I look forward to telling your story. Thank you. Glad to be here today. So where did you grow up? Did you have both parents or, you know, what, what was the condition of the home that you grew up in? For me, uh, my childhood was, I guess you could say, somewhat difficult, a, a rocky childhood. I guess what I'm trying to say, it might have been a poor experience in some ways, but I've learned from it. So I've taken a lot of growth from that, and I feel like God's used it for his good. Um, but definitely, it was a, a challenge. My family was a split-up family. Um, my mom has been married several times. My dad's been married several times. So I have a lot of step-half real siblings. And so it was a very mixture among sure. a bunch of siblings. Yeah. And, you know, and and the reason that I ask that is it does seem like people who have a heart to do foster care typically have come out of places where uh, there there isn't a, what we would call a nuclear family intact, where there are, you know, divorces and step mm -hmm. and half children and that kind of thing. Uh, do you think that prepared you in any way to be a foster parent? Absolutely. I think that my childhood is a huge reason for the, the reason I do the things that I do today. Um, and so uh, you were raised here in Arkansas, assumably? Yes. I was raised here in, in Arkansas, um, primarily in Hot Springs when I was young and then moved down south from there later on when I was probably fourth, fifth grade. And and due to the tragedy of our home and, and everything that was going on with that, what happened for me was I had a lot of people in my life that stepped in as a child and several families that I felt like God placed in my life, and they made a huge difference for me. So even though I had, you know, a, a parent and things of that nature, I had people in the community that I stayed with a lot that took me in and that, you know, gave me a chance, and I seen what normal was in other homes. And so I was very blessed um, to have that, and I think it made a huge impact in my future and who I am today. But if I didn't have that, I don't know that I would have had the same outcome. Sure. And you and you said normal in other people's homes. Do you mm -hmm. recall a time where something, quote, normal happened and you were just like, is that supposed to happen? <laughs> I remember inviting friends over to my house and uh, it wasn't warranted that parents would allow their kids to come over. And other family members, you know, I mean, other kids at school would have parties or things of that nature, and they would have friends over, and it would seem like everything was okay, but they wasn't allowed to come to my house. And so I started putting together that there was something to do with me or my house that was a problem. And for other kids, 
it was accepted. So I knew there was a distinguishing factor between me and my family and other people. And about what age was that? There's so much in my childhood that I honestly don't remember. It, yeah. it truly is. I can't really pinpoint a, n- a number, but I'm going to think, you know, my teenage years, okay. I guess. So growing up, then getting through high school, did you go to college? I did go to college. I got married first, had a child first, um, swore I would never go to college. <laughs> I was, I did very poor. It's poorly. overrated. Yeah. <laughs> I did very poorly in, in high school. Um, I, I know that I barely graduated at school, did not make good grades, got in a lot of trouble growing up had no intentions of going to school. But when I became pregnant with my first child, who's actually the one that's here with me today, there was there came a point where I knew that I wanted different for my family than I had in my life. And so I started thinking about how I could make her future better and um, set a different path for her. And so that's when it started hitting me that I wanted to know that I didn't have to depend on somebody to take care of me or mine. I wanted to know that I could be self-sufficient. And I think maybe some of it was fear-driven, um, it pushed me pretty hard to succeed and get through college. And I even went to associates, went back and got my bachelor's, went back and got my master's because I just had to have that comfort in my mind that I knew that if he did do something wrong to me or something did happen, you know, that I had a way to take care of her and me and I wouldn't be put in a situation that I couldn't defend us. Sure. And, and I assume that comes from the many divorces between your mom and your dad and yes. remarriages. Yes, that and the fact that there was a lot of abuse in my family. Um, I guess she could say on every level of abuse that she could have in a home it, or in a house, big difference between a house and a mm-hmm. home. But my mom stayed in situations that were not ideal to bring up a family in because she felt she had to and she couldn't raise us on her own. And so we were left in some situations that was not good, you know, mm-hmm. for us. You wanted to be self-sufficient. So if something happened... You were in a financial spot that you could leave and not mm-hmm. be stuck. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what? what is your degree in? Um, I'm a nurse practitioner. Okay. Yeah. All right. And do you, are you like for family medicine? Do you specialize or pediatrics? Yes, I chose family so I can kind of be well-rounded and have a big variety. Um, right now I'm focusing primarily in, a, in the acute hospital setting um, under just general medicine. Mm-hmm and make rounds on patients in the hospital. And and I enjoy what I do. I like taking care of others. So it works out pretty good. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, having having a drive and the ability to be a nurse, because it takes a special set of skills and a special personality to even be able to do the work. Do you feel like that kind of came wanting to care for others because of your homes growing up? I mean, I, I... I guess we all have a purpose in life, you know what I mean? And that's kind of, I I don't feel like I'm, I feel like I'm a very flawed person mm. on many different levels, but that's one thing that I feel like God's put in my heart as far as a purpose to be here is take care of other people. I'm not saying I'm always great at it. I could do a lot better, but I have a heart and a, and a desire to do it. So I keep doing it, you know? Well, there's a reason they call it practicing medicine. <laughs> you know, sometimes you... Uh, you know, and not everybody's the same. And even in mental health, you can't prescribe the same medicines and it work for two people exactly yeah. the same or do the same therapy and it work uh, the same. So you had Adrian as your oldest biological child. How old are you now? 20. 20. Okay. Um, and when, when 
it, it's kind of funny when kids come into the picture, we all of a sudden have this new epiphany of, okay, I've got to do this, 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 and this to make sure everything's okay. And so other than going to college, what was, were there any other arrangements that you made to try to better uh, the, the opportunity of life for Adrian? Come hell or high water, I didn't want a divorce. I mean, mm. I hate to say it, but that was probably one of my biggest things. And there's been some times that, you know, I've been married for 20, 21 years, I guess, mm. um, since 1998. It would have been easy a lot of times for either one of us to walk away. Mm. And so no matter, that's probably the next, probably the number one thing, because I feel like that was more important than education is just to keep my family together. That was, I just wanted a family to stay together. And so even though it was hard at times and even though there were struggles, thankfully through God and his grace, you know, he got me through that and I was able to knock on wood as of today, still stay married. So that was a huge thing. It's just to never say no and never give up on our marriage. Yeah. I, I say a lot that marriage is just two imperfect people mm-hmm. who don't give up on each other. And and that really does uh, come into play, especially, you know, when we take that vow seriously till death do us part. And there are situations where that can't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is really admirable. Um, admi- uh, ad- I can't even think now. <laughs> no. Good that that you're willing to do that. Now, Adrian probably doesn't. Do you remember your mom going to college? Yes. Okay. Very very much so. <laughs> okay. Could you explain kind of what home life was like while your mom was in school? Whenever I think back to that time, I remember mom on the computer all the time, doing her work all the time. And my dad, he at that time he worked on the road a whole lot. So mm-hmm. he was gone quite a bit late nights. So it was just us for a while and she I mean, she always done a good job of getting me everything I needed. And, you know, family was really supportive, too, I would say. On dad's side, Yeah, on, on my dad's side. <laughs> I remember her being super stressed, but she done it. She worked, and she went to college and raised me. You know, I mean, my dad was very helpful, I guess, but and so was his family. But there were also many nights, you know, it was just her and I. And, and Bennett. Weren't, and, yeah, and Bennett eventually. But... Weren't there many nights that, like, we were home alone, and we would go up to the neighbor's house, and they would leave mm-hmm. the window open, and we would crawl through the window, mm-hmm. and we would sleep on their couch because we were scared, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, she, my then, husband was a logger, just so you know, and so okay. sometimes he would go out of state in sure. Louisiana and work a job and come home on the weekends, mm-hmm. and so during those weeks is what she's talking about. It wasn't about. that so, he didn't want to be there. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was just, you know, doing what had to be done. And so, yeah, we would go to our neighbors, and sometimes at night we'd sleep on their couch and then go home the next day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was never bad. I just, she, I could tell she was stressed, you know. And so how old were you when your son Bennett, is that his name, came into the picture? Like, we're five years apart, so yeah, life. Yeah. And do you remember anything about that, how life changed for you? was not happy about it. <laughs> I remember being in the hospital. They told me it was a boy. I had a fit. I already had him a pink Care Bear picked out, and I, I wanted a sister, but I was not happy. And we fought there for a while. We did not get along, but... Recently, I guess in like the last year, we've gotten really, really close. Yeah. So that's been good. Yeah. You know, um, Scripture says brothers are 
born for adversity. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's to be expected there. You and your husband, uh, Tamisha, decided to be foster parents. But from what I understand, your husband wasn't on board when the thought first came around. Correct. And so what was his hesitancy about about doing this? Well, from the time that we, you know, pretty much met and then got married, early on he knew that I was interested in fostering and adoption and things of those na- of that nature. Um and he was just completely he just had no desire for that. And and as time went on, he really didn't once we had children and we had Adrian like a year after we was married, I got pregnant. And so his big thing was he was he was worried that if we would bring someone into our child uh, into our home that could be maybe a bad influence or maybe could hurt our child or something along those nature. Or he just was worried about how it would affect our children. And he always assumed it would have a negative effect and he couldn't see the positive. But then as years went on, it just like that desire never left my heart. And so one day I brought home some actual paper like black and white where he could see like the the facts of the statistics of really how many kids there are out there and what their needs were and what happens to these kids and if they don't get the help they need or get the family how it affects them in later years and just some hardcore stuff for him to really look at and and I made him look at it and it was at that point that he was like I guess it just, he really sat and thought about it for a few days. It kind of hit him when he seen it for himself and on paper. He said that he was willing to go to a meeting and, and see what we could do. And the very first meeting we left and I was actually scared. <laughs> and he was like, I'm game, let's mm. do it. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so it was just funny how the roles changed there for just a little bit. But, you know, I was so excited. And, and anyway, it ended up working out that we did this. But, and he also felt better because our kids were a, they were older mm-hmm. by the time we we did that. And I think that did kind of make him feel more settled in our decision. Yeah. So in the state of Arkansas, there is like 13, 1400 kids that are waiting to be adopted mm-hmm. and much more than that uh, in foster care. But in the United States, at any given time, there's at least 400,000 foster kids in yes. the system. And, you know, that's a that's a number that is just mind boggling. That, that anybody could could harm a child or abuse a child in any any way shape or form so you went to this this meeting you said and you were kind of then scared but your husband was mm-hmm. okay so the the rose the roles completely switched so what in that moment allowed you to come around and say okay this is what I still want to do even though, all of this has taken place. Yeah. Well, to clarify that, the the me being scared was like the 30-minute drive home where I was just kind of like in shock. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but by the time the 30-minute drive home, when we arrived home, I mean, I was completely fine. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it was sure. just like initially when we left the meeting, I was like, oh, my goodness. And, and Brad was, he was all game when we left. But I think that going to those meetings or that meeting, you know, it's even though... It had been years since things had happened in, in my life or whatever. It was kind of like, um, I don't, it brings back a lot of feelings. It brings back a lot of memories of different things, and it, it kind of hits you in the face, you mm-hmm. know? And probably memories that you had not remembered ever before. Yeah. And in that moment, 
this this whatever caused you to remember something that you'd forgotten about. Yeah. And it's it's amazing how our brain stores things in our subconscious and we you know, our brain makes us forget some tragic events and then one day something happens and it's all back again. So you said uh, that the kids were older when you really got into looking into foster care and go going to this meeting. How old were your children at that point? Was you a senior in high mm-hmm. school? Adrian yeah. was a senior in high school and Bennett was, I guess, in the seventh grade, mm-hmm. probably. Oh, yeah. So they were older. And going back one step, I just want to put this in there out quick is I think that what happened at that meeting, it, remembering I felt inadequate. Mm. That's that's where the I thought, I don't know if I can do this. You know, mm. I don't know that I'm actually where I need to be in my life to take on such because it's it's a lot. These kids are going through a lot and they have a lot that they're needing to process. And who am I to take care of them? And sometimes I feel like I don't have myself together. You know right. what I mean? I still. Yeah. And so I think there was a little bit of inadequacy and, and just feeling that I think probably was, you know, because you, you don't want to harm more. Or you want to be able to help. And so, you know, could I supply what they needed? Could I, you know, did we have as a marriage what it took as a family, what it took to endure what was going to happen to us for for our family? And could we help them and not hurt them? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say that if there wasn't a feeling of inad- inadequacy that, you probably shouldn't be in foster care. You know, yeah. that that if you've got it all figured out, then it's probably not the place for you. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Because every kid is different. So Adrian, uh, you're you're a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. Your parents come to you and say, We're thinking about being foster parents. Now you already hate your brother because you wanted a, a sister. <laughs> yeah. And and how did that, do you remember what kind of mental process you went through when they told you that? I think at that time, my brother and I were getting along better, mm-hmm. you know, quite a bit better. But I feel like I've always had a mm-hmm. big heart for people like that. And I've always been one to, I don't really care to hang out with the popular people. I want to go with the other people and get to know them. And I love getting to know people and helping people out. So I've, was all for it. I wanted to. I was, was excited. Gotcha. And so did you do your pride training through DHS or did you do it through the call? We went through the call. Okay. So, you know, the good thing about the call is that you do the training in two weekends yes. and not two nights a week for seven weeks or, yes. or whatever it is. So, and, and it does seem like the call facilitates you a lot more to get things done so mm-hmm. that DHS approves you. Mm-hmm. So how long was it after your pride training that you were actually open? Do you remember? Goodness, I don't really remember. I'm thinking maybe at max two to three months before mm-hmm. we had our first placement. Yeah. And, and see, a lot of people kind of had the mindset that, Hey, if I, if I'm open, they're going to call and call right then. And even in adoption, people are, you know, okay, we're open. We'll get a call any day. And that's just not the way that it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first placement that you that you had in your home, tell me about that child. What were their age? What what were the circumstances, if you remember, for them being taken out of the home? She was a young girl at the age of two, and absolutely changed our world we fell in Mm -hmm. love with her for sure um still a big part of our life today circumstances at her home was i guess probably chemical dependence in the family 
one parent involvement, the other parent not involved. And so that's mainly chemical drug abuse. Gotcha. And so how did taking that child in and being had she had been in that environment, did you see any type of behavioral issues of her coming into your home and things being different? She knew how to cuss. <laughs> <And> <laughs> she knew how to cuss very well. Uh, she was a handful. Actually, I don't know how to, I don't know if I can give all the details. The deal is with that situation is we're still very involved with that family. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give you a shortcut to the to the chase on that because I don't know that, that I can really delve in on all that case, but I'll be happy with another. The, the situation with that is, is actually... Um, she was with us six months or so, Let's went back home, her. and um, six months after her going back to her home, her family, her dad reached out to us as a, for a support family, and so we we were so happy to do that. Long story short, we have a relationship with her family now, and we get along very well. We're actually pretty close and work very well together, and so kind of like takes a village to raise a child, and so we actually spend quite a bit of time with her and... Um, and we'll see what the future holds. Gotcha. So, Adrian, how did everything change in your world when you now have a two-year-old come in the home? I loved her. Still love her. <laughs> and I'm going to get emotional because... <laughs> it's okay. There's Kleenex right there. You could just slide them over to her. When she left, that was that was very hard. Adrian really struggled. I mean, I'm talking about it. it's probably... Probably started a, a, a downward kind of depression cycle, I guess you could say. She That was really tough on her. It, it was a hard hit. But I think your very first placement is always the hardest. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. It just seems like I've heard that through a lot of foster families. Yeah. And, and you know, our listeners know, but I don't know if, if you know, my son is adopted. Oh, cool. And um, we we got him two days after his first birthday. And my wife and I had discussed that we were not foster parent material uh, because there would be no way that I would have a kid for any amount of time and, one, not fall in love with them, but, two, not allow them to be taken back sometimes Mm -hmm. in the same situation. Yeah. And so I could completely understand how how Adrian would feel Mm -hmm. uh, with this um, baby going home, and it probably really did feel like she was yeah, your baby. Because, I mean, and you don't know anything. They take them, they're gone, and you don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. You know where what house they're in that night, or who's bed, or anything. Like you have no idea. So, mm-hmm. and sometimes you don't even know they're coming for them. Mm-hmm. They just show up. And oh, yeah. and her situation was a it's that it was a. <laughs> It's a long story, and I don't know that I could say that on air, but it was a very, um, it, that was a very traumatic event for our family, and uh, not the typical ordinary setup or case. It mm. was, it was a lot of involvement in that situation, and so, anyway, we got through it, and God worked a miracle through it. Six months later, he she did. was back in our life again, and she still is today, and she is a, a beautiful piece of our life. I mean, yeah. she's got an imprint on us that will be with us forever. And so we're very thankful. And, and I'm sure she feels the same way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She loves us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in in foster care, um, you, you open typically with a uh, preference of how many children 
what your home will allow, you know, yes. is you have to, what is it, like 150 square foot per child in a room, at right. least not the home. But um, what was what was it like to sit down and say, okay, we've got to decide what we will allow and what we will not allow? Or did you just say, hey, we'll take anybody that needs a home to go to? <laughs> We was pretty open about that. Honestly, there wasn't too many things that um that we really checked off of that uh, that I can remember. I mean, we was we we could uh, we was allowed three placements in our home. We were open to all sex, all uh, race. Oh, I remember the things. One of the major things that we did decide on: we didn't want a female of the opposite, you know, sex of our son. Mm-hmm. That age range, you know, because right. we didn't we didn't feel comfortable with that. Same with Adrian, we didn't want a boy in the home that was in her age frame, just because it'd be uncomfortable for our daughter or our son to be, you know, sure in their own environment, sure. taking a shower, going back to their room, things of that nature and stuff. And we just didn't want to have any doings with something going stray there. Um, so we did watch the ages, um. And because we have no daycare in our local community, we couldn't take any babies, per se. They had to be able to go to a daycare. Um, and and we was able to get the first one to Hot Springs and, and work that out, but we couldn't take a small one. I don't think there was really anything else that we marked on there. Um, I know for a while Bennett didn't want anyone, even a boy his age, Around. Oh yeah, he didn't. But, he, for him, he chose that himself. Yeah. He asked it be not, but we ended up getting... He, we had a situation where there was a, a a DHS worker called us and she said, we need placement for this boy. It was the situation where he had ran away. And she said, could you please just keep him for the weekend? And so he was around my son Bennett's age. And so I said, let me speak to my son, you know, because we have to do this together. It's sure. everyone involved. Right. And so Bennett was kind of hesitant, but he was like, you know, if it's a weekend and he wasn't really all that happy about it, but, you know, I was like, it's going to be a weekend and so he was like, okay, fine, whatever. And so the weekend turned into a seven, eight months. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. And Bennett actually really bonded with him. Yeah. And, um, and it worked out okay. And there's a story behind that one, too. I guess there's a story behind them all. Uh, but I, th- I don't think he would care if we said his name. His- no. No, you cannot say oh, his name. Oh, we can't. No. no. Well, if he's listening, <laughs> he knows who he is. <laughs> he's cool. Yeah, so I could understand not wanting a child in that age range, but the minute you said it was just for a weekend, I knew it wasn't going to be for a weekend because yeah. uh, those social workers will tell you anything mm-hmm. to get them into your home. Well, what happened was they were pretty good. You're mm-hmm. right about that. Um, we've had some odd situations come up where I've actually had to on. There was a, a case we had two boys come and we had to ask to have them removed. And it was so hard and we cried and we cried and we only had them for maybe two, two months, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then um, we had another situation that we had him like maybe a day. And they came and got him the next day because there was some stuff that was left out that wasn't really privy to us until after he showed up and was in our house and they had left. And we were like, no, this ain't going to work. And that's sad. Nobody ever wants to do that. But in his case, they actually stood by their word and uh, said they'd be back by to pick him up. And, And my son came to me and he said, you know, if he really don't have anywhere to go and everything you know, let's, we can try it a little longer. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And so we kind of took it day by day there for a while. And it took him probably two months to actually warm up to him. Mm-hmm. And then 
then they kind of started getting a bond there. They but. were going out and skating together and yeah. shooting hoops, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so, uh, Adrian, what is the, what is the, because you've had 15 yes. children. Um, I assume that you were in the home for several of those, mm-hmm. probably maybe not all of them. What is one story of a foster child that just, just sticks out to you as being one of the best experiences? I mean, I guess the best experience, the happiest ending, in my opinion, would be with our first one, because that was a win for not only us, but her too. And I feel like her family as well. We've gained relationships with them and we love them, you know, a lot too. But there have been many cases and I don't know, you know, like I said earlier, they go and you don't know what happens to them. But there have been many cases that I think about every day, you know, because they stand out, but you don't always know about that happy ending. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one thing that stinks about all of it, you know. Yeah, and the caseworker that dropped them off may not be the caseworker that picks them up. Mm-hmm. Um, we went through that with my son is that he had a new caseworker every every week, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we can all agree that the DHS workers are overworked and, mm-hmm. and underpaid for right. what they have to mm-hmm. go through and deal with. But there is this misconception uh, within some uh, dealing with foster care that the foster parents are doing it for the income. Mm-hmm. Now, I, for one, know what that income is a month. And I couldn't probably properly take care of my dog, you know, with that amount of income. Um, so what was what was that like to uh, – because I, I can only assume because we're not foster parents, but it, it's like – well, now it's like $325. Is that about right? Yeah. Okay. But, A little more. depends okay. on the age. Right. But then if they are only there for two or three days, then that is prorated – Right. to how long they were in your home. Mm-hmm. So how did that that affect you in, in, in knowing I've got to be prepared to take care of a child, but I may not even know what age they would be or, or what race. And in, in my experience as a, as a CASA worker before we adopted, I know that sometimes kids would go to a foster home with just a Walmart sack mm-hmm. of, oh, yeah. of one change of clothes mm-hmm. and sometimes nothing. Yeah, we so, had several show up with nothing. So how do you handle that situation? Well, in our situation, we were very lucky because we went through the call. And so, um, you know, we've had several that showed up in the middle of the night. I mean, literally in the middle of the night, one, two o'clock in the morning. The one we have now, our mm-hmm. placement now is one of those tra- children. Yep. So if need be on a placement like that, that comes with nothing, you know, we could run to the call mall and gather up some supplies to get us started until we can get to the store and get you know, school supplies or whatever, we have a starting kit that we can go to, which is very, very helpful. I'm not going to say that every foster family out there is doing it for the right intentions. I'm sure, unfortunately, there probably is somebody out there that's doing it for the wrong and shame on them. I think they'll see justice for that Mm -hmm. one day if that's the case. But I do believe that the majority of people out there are doing this for the the right reasons. And um, there's no amount of money that's going to be able to consume the sacrifices and and, and, and and pay what you do as a family whenever you're doing this for children because and it's not that I'm trying to say that we you know we've done so much or something like that these kids are worth every bit of it mm-hmm. and 
on so many different levels, but it, it's a sacrifice to do this and sacrifices of things that money can't buy. It literally touches every aspect of your, your world, your life, your family, your home, that your privacy, your, your marriage, your, your relationship with your kids. You know, it, it it's, it's much of a blessing it is through this journey. It's also, it can be very painful and very, you know, it's very hard. And so I don't think you can put a price tag on, changing life of kids or impacting others you know i think that it's um there's so much more to it than a paycheck sure so when my wife and i adopted we had not seen him at all until the day of the staffing that we were supposed to get him and his foster mother came to the staffing and did not bring him which i found a bit odd as you may know, in the state of Arkansas, when you go to adopt, the child stays in your home for 8 to 12 hours and then goes back to the foster home, and then the next day stays with the adoptive parents oh, wow. permanently. So we got him on one day, and he was with us eight hours, and and I still have pictures of how sickly he looked. My, he was born with aortic stenosis, oh. and they did the— uh, a balloon procedure, and when they did, it ruptured his aorta. So at three months old, he had open-heart surgery. And so he has all of these medical issues. And, and I just remember how pale and how sick he looked. And the day that we got him, the uh, the practitioner's clinic, the PCG, is that what it's at Children's? They called, and they were going to place an NG tube. Mm. And I, I said, for what? They said, well— his foster mother said that he's not eating again. I said, he has literally ate everything that I have put in front of him. Wow. And long story short, after the second day that we had him, she called and she said, uh, Dr. Shepard, do you know what you're getting into with his health? And I said, well, I don't want to be arrogant, but I am Dr. Shepard, and I have gone through a lot of training, and my wife is a at that point was a pediatric nurse, and I said, I think that we're well-equipped. And uh, the conversation went on, and she finally said, I can't afford to lose that money. And that was the end of the conversation for me. Oh, no. And so what we found was that she was not following the doctor's orders. She was not giving him the medicine that he was ordered to take that she would leave him upstairs in his crib all day long and play the Wizard of Oz over and over again. Uh, And he still, to this day, if he hears the song somewhere over the rainbow, he just becomes kind of catatonic. And so how do you, as the person who is supposed to have entrusted to take care of the child, do that? But it happens every day, and mm-hmm. and once again, long story short, I reported her to the state police. She was arrested, and she is currently in prison uh, for for child neglect and abuse as oh, a as a foster parent. It's awful. Um, but those kind of things happen every day. Yes. And how do we, as as citizens, try to make a difference in the foster care system to to make sure that there's not as many incidents as there is now. Because, of course, we can't fix everything because you're dealing with people, and when you're dealing mm-hmm. with people, you don't always get the same outcome. Right. But what are some things that that you could think of that, that could have prevented that type of situation? Boy, that's a tough one. 
You know, I think sometimes, I and mean, this might be coming at it at a different angle, but I think sometimes because there's such a lack of support for foster kids, we don't have the foster homes that we need. I think sometimes, even though the situation may not be ideal, where else are, are there to go? And mm. so they get left in an environment that they might have a little red flag or two about here or there, and they overlook this, well, overlook that. And if they're overlooking this, that, and other, what is it that they're not seeing that mm. they have they're not even got the opportunity to overlook? You know what I mean? What's really going on that they're not seeing? And so I think a lot of it is is we need more foster homes because I think these kids stay in homes too long, whether they be their biological homes or maybe in a house that they're not getting care in a foster home because there's nowhere else to send them. Um, maybe if we had more open homes, we could help with this. And, you know, I would just encourage people not to be scared of, of fostering. And I can understand that feeling. I, I completely get it. I think there's probably not been a time that I've ever invited a kid into my home that I haven't been fearful of what, what might they bring. You know what mm. I mean? You never know what they're going to bring to your house or come with. I guess I look at it kind of like these kids have been labeled and it's sad. And it's like when I think about them, I just almost like I could just see them kind of like, you know, back in the day when the woman wore the A, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like mm -hmm. everyone saw her as just that and nothing but the adulteress or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like these kids are flagged and they were this sign of shame of I'm a foster kid every day of their life. And people can't see past that sign of I'm a foster child to see that child. And so they're just thinking about all the things that could be wrong, all the things that this kid could do and that there's never going to be a chance. And just, it's just easier to turn the, turn the eye than to pull that label off of them and just look at that child. And, you know, we all have labels in life. We just don't carry ours because we've not been tagged with it like these kids have. And it's just not fair. So I think if we could realize that they're not the only ones that carry something and we might not be able to carry you know a bd for a divorce you know what i mean we've all there's been a lot of people had divorce and they're not bad people it happens right. you know it's sad um but it, it probably burdens people or you know alcoholic or whatever it is that that person's dealing with you know depression anxiety or whatever it is but these kids don't have a chance they can't hide their their weakness or their yeah. trauma, you know, every, it's out there for everyone to see. And so I wish we could just kind of remove that veil from them and see them as kids and not be scared and have more people step up. Sure. And the scarlet letter, you know, the yeah. A that you're talking about with, with these foster children is that they do get this label, but at no fault of their own. Exactly. And, and so how do we, how do we try to protect them in that? Uh, Adrian, was there there was there things that you did while these foster kids that were were in your home that you tried to make them feel like that they weren't uh, disposable, that they weren't just taken away, and that they they had no worth. I mean, like the one we have now. Every time I see him, I'm constantly pumping him up, just mm -hmm. positive, 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 positive things. And even whenever he does make a poor choice or whatever, I mean, everyone does. It's just, I think, how you address it, you know, and I don't try to make a big deal out of, oh, you done this, you done that. Okay, you done that. Let's fix it or solve it, whatever. And now you're going to do better things because I know you can. And, you know, I just try to stay real positive with them and tell them positive things about themselves because it's hard, you know, when they already have that label, that's how they feel. I work with kids 
now in my job and there are some and I know their backstories and stuff like that and you can tell when they walk through the doors you know the way they hang their head they won't look up at you they have no Mm -hmm. confidence every kid should have that they should feel like somebody and she also teaches us how to be better parents when she sees (laughs) us falling short you know she's quick to say mom you did not handle that the right way you should have done this and so she also corrects me and helps me stay in check too if she and i I learn from her but because she might pick up something i'm not seeing that i'm doing sure well in my last the job i'm in now and the one previously before with kids in like a preschool environment so we have to go to all these trainings on like you know positive reinforcement and all that other stuff but I would overall say I just try to say positive things to them because they come in they already feel that way you know and so even for me whenever I'm having a hard month or few months or whatever when you feel that way it's not easy to just tell yourself oh I'm this I'm I'm good I'm it's not easy and so sometimes you have to be that for someone else you know because they can't be it for themselves. Also working in these environments with different people, you see how other people treat them. And those kids reflect on that. They can tell they're not dumb. They're very smart. And so the way others treat them, and that's just, Mm -hmm. you don't even have to be a foster family or a foster parent or anything. Just be a decent human being, you know, have decent respect or common respect and treat them how you would want to be treated or want your own kid to be treated. Because they can they can tell. And if you're rude, then that's how they're going to act out, you know. But if you talk to them, which I tell the people, like, whenever I got this interview at this other job, I like those kids. Mm-hmm. I want those kids. Those are the ones I connect with more because I want to get to know them. I don't want to know all their business, but my goal from that point on is to build trust so they can tell me whatever they need to. We talked about how quickly they come into your home, and it's, I mean, it's a phone call, and they're however long it takes them to get mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. the DCFS office or the police department or the sheriff's office, they bring them right to your home. But one thing that I think sometimes we forget is that as quick as they were brought to you, sometimes was as quick as they were removed from their home. Oh, absolutely. Without mm-hmm. any idea yes. that mm-hmm. what they were going through with their parents or someone else was wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how have you had those situations where uh, you've had a child that was just completely confused about what their parents was doing was wrong because that's all they ever knew. Yeah, I have two two boys that come to mind, and they were both my older older ones, um, teenage boys, and they came from something that was not normal. One in particular seemed to, he was in the environment long enough, I guess, and he in his mind still feels like that's okay, that that's just the way that they are and that it's just different. And then I had another situation where this boy's dad had mistreated his daughter's and he was, and in him, I just seen this the sadness in his face because he, he still he that was his dad, and he was trying to wrap his mind around how his dad could do these things, the man that he loved, and realize that his dad was a part of something so horrific. And he, I remember, he had a picture of his dad by mm-hmm. his bedside for a long, long time. He he kept that right there by his bedside, or he slept right by his head. And there came a point to where he finally one day put the picture down. Mm. And um, 
then there came a day that he had put the picture away. You know, he just completely did away with it. And so you could see as time went by, he finally grasped that something wasn't right. And he he started to accept it, you know, and, and turned from that. But um, that was hard on him. Yeah. And, and I would imagine that it's hard for most children to think that their parents are doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I had a, a guest on the podcast who was a foster child, and she was being sexually, mentally emotionally, physically abused. And she is the one that initiated the call to DCFS. Mm. And so when they came, they took her and her younger brother out of the home. And she said that she recalls feeling so guilty because her decision didn't just affect her. Mm -hmm. It affected her brother And her brother and she could not be placed in the same foster home because there wasn't anybody to take them. Right. And so they were both left to kind of fend for themselves. Have you ever had a child in your home that was the initiator of the complaint that then felt guilty? We had two young boys that came to our home that had been through probably that was probably out of all the cases we've had. That was the most horrific amount of um, abuse. It was a very tragic, horrific case probably one of the biggest ones in Arkansas I would if I had to guess I mean I don't know the cases but I mean it was that bad that I think it would be at the tip of the iceberg and um, we hope yeah I hope yeah yeah and so they came to us and it's not his fault he wasn't wrong he 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 had this stuff handed down to him but just like we all know in the world of that we live in you know if you don't ever break the chain if you don't ever stop the cycle it continues and so this cycle had not been broken with him yet in his young age, and he carried on some things to his brother, and um, it was exposed. And so once it was exposed and he realized what he had done and the fact that they was now going to be separated and him and his brother were actually very close, it's all they had. And it was traumatic because, you know, they hadn't been with this long and then they had to leave, but we knew they couldn't stay because of the situation. They shared a room. Mm. And even though they had different beds, it was not it was not able to be stayed in the same room again. And so um, that was hard um, because you could see it. I don't even know how to explain it. It was just the guilt and the shame that he felt and all this stuff that he had been handed. I mean, this was normal for him in his life. And. I don't know. It was just terrible. But then he realized that he couldn't be with his brother anymore and they had to be separated. And I'm sure he felt like he was the instigator and he caused the pain in that situation. So that's the story that comes to my mind in that. And that was a that was horrible. That was really, really bad. Well, you know, a lot of times, though, these these kids need to be reminded, even if they are the initiator, Mm-hmm. that they have saved the life yes. of their mm-hmm. siblings. Yeah. Um, and even though it's hard and we don't always get to place them in the same home, and we don't even always get to adopt them mm-hmm. to the same people. Right. Um, that, that is very difficult uh, for them to, to deal with. Um, we did adopt. I don't know if you know that part of our no, story. No, I didn't. No. But uh, we, one of our beautiful foster kids came and stayed and, he had been in the system for quite a while, and needless to say, he's with us today, and we was able to adopt him, and he's now 11 years old, and um, 
we're it's it's been a journey mm. it's been a learning yeah. curve let me tell you yeah but you know we love him and he loves us and i thank god put him in our family for a very specific reason and he is a character he is <laughs> such a mess so what made you decide <laughs> to move for adoption for him because i assume when you started it wasn't the goal to adopt at all yeah was how it? we met him was he actually came to us as a respite child so mm. he was in another foster home and they went on a vacation or something bible i don't know where they went but they asked if we would keep him for respite while they went with their family to something and so we said sure so he came and stayed with us for a week and he didn't want to leave and then the DHS worker came and picked him up. And then she called me like the next day and she said, I don't know what's going on, but she said he did not want to return to his foster care family that he's been at. And she said he was devastated and he did not want to leave and he wants to come back to your place. And I was like, oh, bless his heart, you know, because our family kind of just hit it off with him, you know, from the get go. And, and nothing against the other foster home he was at. It's just some some you click in some areas and some areas you don't. You know, they seem like great people. Um, but it just, it was not a match for them. And, um, and they didn't have any plans on adoption. And so they knew it wasn't going to be a long term realizing that he, he was going to definitely be in up for adoption. And they decided they did not want to perceive that route or go that direction. And so the DHS worker called and said, they're not wanting to go that route or they would, they want to go ahead and end this now because they don't want to continue. So he came to our house. And that's how he came to be a part of our family. And we just decided to keep him because we loved him and he loved us. And the the big thing is, if I can be honest here, is I don't know what would have happened to him. I think, you know, and how could we walk away from that? If we have a home and we have a bed, how are we going to say no? <laughs> I think that there comes a point where you do the right thing. And of course you do it because you want to, but there's also... um I think that we're called to to father the homeless, to be yeah. there for these kids. I mean, that's my personal opinion. Whether you like it or not, I think it's, it's the way it needs to be. And if we all did our part, we wouldn't have 400,000 kids in the world mm-hmm. without a home. Yeah, um, He's a biracial kid. I don't know how all that is and why it's the way it is. But, you know, unfortunately, kids with color are sometimes harder to place. We've had kids in our home that the little boy we have right now is just as black as black gets mm. and let me tell you we love that little boy mm-hmm. and it should never ever make a difference right you know so it worked out and he is a he's a mess and we're happy to have him yeah um so was there ever an instance where you would have family members or someone say to you you probably shouldn't oh yeah i had it and then when you adopted, it was, why did you do that? Absolutely. How did you deal with that? Honestly, I, I mean, I mean, Adrian can vouch for me. I don't, I didn't like it. And, and and it was kind of hurtful, but I dealt with it with love and grace. I'll just be honest with you. I didn't heart, didn't heart back. I just said, you know, I don't see a color. It was a color mm. thing. It was a, yeah. it honestly was, it was a color thing. And um, I had a family member that was very strong about it. Another one that was a little vocal, but I had one that was a very close family member that was very, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a devastation for, for that to have taken place. And I'm hoping with time he'll, he'll grow up and realize and see things differently. But yeah, I dealt with it. And I just told him that that's not God's heart. (laughs) I mean, in those situations, this is my choice. This is my family. I'm making it. And if you don't like it, 
I, I don't necessarily like that, but I'm not going to sit over here and dwell over it and, you know, let it turn into something real, real big. Yeah. And, and one thing that, that I try to share with people is that uh, you may have an opinion and we appreciate mm-hmm. your opinion. Right. But at the end of the day, you don't get to vote. Yeah, we're, exactly. We're the people that get to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. However, while it's difficult uh, to place African-American children, the instance of adoption of African-American children is is very high if they are under a certain age. Mm-hmm. Why, for instance, three years or younger, they will just about always be adopted. Wow. Why do you think that is, why is there a difference within that age group? They're so cute. <laughs> I mean, they are the cutest little babies. No, I really don't know. I don't guess I honestly was, I didn't realize that mm-hmm. they were such a high rate of adoption for kids that age group. I did not know that. Yeah. That's news for me, but I feel like some people have a lot of, a lot of ideas or perceptions of that culture. And I think what they think, they think that kid is going to bring in. And I think they think, well, at this age, they don't know much. They've not been indoctrinated yet. So the one we have now, how old is he? Like five? He knows so much. Right off the bat, we got him at midnight. We, I, we were all supposed to go to work the next day. I texted my boss right then, told her I wasn't coming. Stayed up with him all night, <laughs> all day. From the night we got him, it was very apparent all of the things he had seen in his lifetime. She was telling me just on the way up here something he was doing the other day. You know he's seen it. So he has carried a lot of that. He's not a bad kid. We absolutely love him and, you know, whatever. But he's seen those things. And so I think that might be maybe why some people don't want them to be much older, you know, because they have saw some things. Oh, not because all they of have them. the perception that these kids have. Yeah. Because they're not all, but yeah. And we still do live in the deep south where right. there is a yeah. lot of, I hate to say a lot of racism, but it is has been passed down. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, it has. A, a generational racism. Yeah. But you know, as I say, uh, we all bleed red. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. We all have the same insides. Yeah, you ought to see me taking all these kids with me to the store <laughs> and the looks I get. And half uh, the time I forget to wear my wedding wing if I run into town or something mm-hmm. right quick. And like, I mean, I've got like seven different kids of all different race and all different ages, and they're all calling me mama. And I mean, I look like a hoodlum because I'm taking care of kids and I just run in there and like the looks and the disrespect mm-hmm. and the comments and it's insane. Yeah. And with our son that we adopted, I went to a, a store that I've gone to several times the other day, and literally we were targeted in the store. And mm. I truly felt like they thought that he was picking up something mm. to the point at the register. I said, I feel like we've been stalked in here. Does somebody think that we're stealing or what? Mm. Because we have been like followed throughout the store everywhere we go. And I have no idea if that happened or not, but that sure is what it felt like. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it just is mind boggling that we still have uh, that kind of race issue in our lifetime now. The good news is, though, I have to say, we live in about the countryest, countryest of the places that you will ever <laughs> mm-hmm. live. Okay. And there is. Like, really, I think maybe our child's the only black one. I don't know. There might be three. I don't know. Like, hardly none. 
But I will say, in our little country bumpkin part of the woods, our son and our foster son that literally has been nothing but embraced and loved by our community. I will say that for sure. There has not been the first in our community people that have done nothing but be sweet in stores and restaurants and just love on them. And and so there's still good people in the world. It's not all crazy. Right. I remember you you saying you were in the store. I remember when we first got Luke in that pre-adoption phase, we received WIC vouchers, mm-hmm. women, infants, and children, which subsidize uh, groceries for the mm-hmm. home. And I'm kind of one of those people that is waste not, want not yeah. kind of mm-hmm. people. And so, and my wife is even more so than me. And so when we got these vouchers, we made it a point that we got the food, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. that we needed that. And I recall uh, there was one Sunday afternoon the voucher was going to expire on Monday that I went to a Kroger store here in North Little Rock. And, you know, I'm in a thousand dollar suit, you know, just left church, you know, have a ring, have a watch. And, and the lady that checked me out, she said, you, pro- you don't even need this, do you? You're taking away from people who need this. And I said, excuse me? Because I, I felt oh like I was gosh. automatically labeled by the employee yeah. as someone who was abusing the system. Mm. Have you ever had an, an incident or occurrence where you felt like someone was pinpointing you for that? Well, I know that there are, there's somebody in our community at some point, I guess, made the comment that we were just doing this for money, like literally about our home. Um, so I guess it's the only time I remember somebody really saying anything. And none of my kids were ever young enough. I don't think that they ever got a, a WIC check. I don't think any of them. I think the youngest we ever had was two, and Madeline didn't come with one. So I never had to use that in the grocery store. Well, after that point, I was really even embarrassed to go Yeah, I made and you feel, it. yeah, you sure. Know, it made me feel, while it wasn't wrong, it made me feel like I had done sure. something wrong, which then leads me back to the kid that has been now taken from the home, they've not done anything wrong, but nine times out of 10, they feel like they have done something mm-hmm. wrong. How is that, Adrian? how is that something that they show you without saying that I feel guilty? We have a bunch that just barely shuffle, you know, head down and, and like a house environment or the classroom or wherever you're at, it's uh, they don't want to ask for anything, and when they have to, they feel very like a burden almost or something, you know. But a lot of these kids coming out of these environments probably were kids that were told not to ask for anything. Mm-hmm. And and if you did anything to rock the boat, you were just going to get abused more. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that, that we have to help them overcome. Yeah. So how would we how would you explain to us to help a child to overcome the thought of knowing that it's okay to ask for help? I mean, I would tell them like it's okay to ask for help and then I would just try to make it whenever I'm with them. Do you need this or would you want this and just make it more of a normal thing to mm-hmm. ask because like you said there are kids that I work with and I've heard stories, you know, where they try to go get something to eat. And then they're in trouble because they tried to go get food. Mm-hmm. You know, a bare I think necessity. One thing that I've picked up on, and and even in my own life, I had to learn this: the right to have a voice. Because these mm-hmm. kids, 
don't have one. And so what I try to do in my home with them, whether we're at the deli and they're trying to figure out what they want for lunch and they look at you and they go, I don't know. I don't know. Like they've never seen a menu in your life. Yeah, my wife does that every, every <laughs> Sunday. You know, making them pick and say it, you know, what do you, what do you want? Mm. Like what they want matters. Right. What, mm-hmm. what they, what they want. If everybody else got a cheeseburger, don't just say, well, I'll just take that or, you know, it's be Say what mm-hmm. you want and yeah. let me give it to you because what you want matters. You know, do you want a cheeseburger? Mm-hmm. Do you want yours with lettuce or no lettuce? You mm-hmm. know, and 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 also a thing that I make my kids do at the house, and sometimes I'm sure they think I'm crazy, but one day they'll 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 be able to say yes and no because these kids don't they they don't know what's safe to say if mm-hmm. it's okay to say yes or if it's okay to say no, and so they don't say anything. And so whenever I'm talking to my kids, I I want them to tell me. If I ask them a question, is it a yes or is it a no? So they learn how to speak their voice. So if somebody comes at them later and they touch them in a way that's inappropriate, they know how to say no. They can say the word. They don't have to just stand there and clam up in a, in a heated moment to where there's pressure on them, whether it be an evil look of a parent in their face. <laughs> they have a voice to say no. And so... And you can use that in so many areas, you know what I mean, in your life, whether it be drugs or, you know, whatever, you can say no. Or, And so teaching them to have a voice and to speak up and to say what they want to say. And sometimes it might not be what you want to hear, yeah. but, but that's okay. You know, it's still, and Adrian has taught me this as my own daughter. She has taught me this and I've learned from her. I think we could learn from kids you know, she has told us, and and I will be the first to admit, I'm not a perfect mom. I've made mistakes, and she's my own biological daughter. <laughs> and, you know, there came a point in time in her life to where she said, I feel like no matter if I say, if you don't like what I'm going to say, then the discussion's going to be over, or you're going to mandate this is how I should feel about it. And she's like, I don't like that. Well, I got thinking about it and we had made her feel that way. She has a right to speak what she wants to speak within respectful. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not saying kids should just run all over their parents and beat her, you know, but kids do have the right to voice their concerns, their wishes, their wants, and know that their voice and their desires matter, that they are important. And that much more in kids like this, they have to know they have a place and that they matter and that they are important, that they're worth something. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm the pastor of, of a church here, and we are uh, the dom- denomination is Missionary Baptist of America or Baptist Missionary Association of America. And our denomination has a children's home in Texarkana. And the director um, of that goes and visit, visits churches for the point of trying to raise money for the home, which we know what subsidy you get from DCFS is not going to subsidize for a home like that. Right. Um, and so he told a story about this young man that they had just got. He was like eight or nine years old. And they were at lunch, and he was just shoving everything he could find in his mouth. And just like to the point of where he was going to make himself sick. Mm-hmm. And so he said, I went casually over to him and said, hey, slow down, or you're not going to have enough room to eat supper. And he said, we get to eat again today. Yep, heard that one. It just breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. We've seen that several times. And I would say that but I think nearly all of them, but maybe a handful, have dealt with some kind of a eating issue. You know yeah. what I mean? Where they hoard food, they they will not quit eating. I mean, even yes, we have definitely had our and that's been a struggle for me. I have to say some things I feel more stronger in and some things I feel more um 
weaker in that area. And that's one thing that I feel more weak. It's very hard to know how to handle this food thing that they have because they, I mean, I literally would put my, I've always done it, even before I was foster mom, I've always put my chips up in the cabinet in a certain area. That's where my chips and my cookies and this, that, and the other go. I had one child who asked me why I was hiding the food from them because I was taking it off the counter. They felt like I was trying to hide it. Well, that was just a normal behavior for me. I wasn't hiding. That's just where our food like that goes. And I keep it off the countertops. And so they had to have food within sight or they felt like we were, you know, and then they would hoard, you know, so they have to have certain access to food at all times. But we've definitely had overeaters. We've had those who have stuffed so much they've puked. It's been a, the food thing has been a challenge. Not just food, but like baths, you know, a oh, lot yeah. of kids don't even get that. Or this, the one we have now, whenever we got him and he come with his little bag that they brought with his toothbrush, how many times did he go through that bag? Looking at the same stuff, the the floss, the toothbrush. Like he had had the best Christmas of his life. (laughs) I mean, so happy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's that's so sad. Yeah, he 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 literally he we I mean he he, we had to teach him how to take a bath, how to put the soap in the wash rag. He didn't know how to do anything. All those things. We're finally learning how to you know go to the bathroom and do the steps that required you know to go to the bathroom. Um. Just things that people just take for granted, you know, that a six-year-old does, you know, but if they've never been taught, I mean, literally he would go to the bathroom and pull his pants up. Mm. That was it, yeah. you know? And so you had to teach him things. And then we went through about, I don't know how many times our toilet has overflowed because when we were teaching him how to use toilet paper, he would just wrap it up, yeah. you know, and then he'd fit in the toilet and we would have an overflow of our toilet and dealing with that until he got that figured out. And so, yeah, they come with all sorts of fun stuff but at the end of the day they're they're a kid and mm-hmm. they just need to be loved and, and they need to learn and it's just you know if you don't have that exposure you just don't know so they're the same as a normal kid it's just they might be a little bit late in figuring these things out because no one's taught them right but i have to say i want to add this part too is i don't want anybody to ever hear this and think that that i'm against any parent that has a child in foster care i, I definitely want to put that in here because I honestly feel like, yes, there's people that willingly make mistakes and do things that are just pure evil. I absolutely believe there's evil in the world. But I would say it's so important to realize that a lot of times these families that have kids in the care are brought up with families that, yeah, it's a cycle. It's a cycle that's never been broken. And it's people need to help these families as much as they can, too, to to equip them to be the parents they need to be, you know? And so I don't judge these parents. There's been times I have, I'm not going to say I've never, but I've tried hard not to and try hard to see the bigger picture and to see their heart and to help them and not speak any judgment against them or nothing like that. Yeah. And, and that's so important. Um, you know, most people don't realize that foster care, the goal is reunification. Always, that no is, matter what. Right. And then when the goal becomes adoptive, then typically, while they may not immediately be taken out of foster care, it's getting that child prepared mentally and physically to go to an adoptive home, a forever home. And um, so many people think that, and it's easy to do. It's easy to look at a child and see the abuse and know the abuse and immediately just 
I can't understand why you mm-hmm. would do that to a kid. And, and it's easy to get those thoughts, but we all have to understand that we have to have a level of grace mm-hmm. for anybody because mm-hmm. uh, it was just God's grace that kept us from doing that to our children. Exactly. Um, I feel like that could have been me with mine. You know, mm-hmm. I really do. I could, I could have very easily. I mean, I have siblings and we all turned out different. We all have different paths of life, you know, and so it could have very well been me that, you know, I mean, when I was growing up and the trouble that I got into as a kid, I mean, I, I was involved in drinking and drugs and you name it, I was involved in it as a young kid. And so it was just by the grace of God, you know, that I, I didn't go there myself. And so and it was those people that influenced me and, and helped me. And, and and I'm not speaking against my mom or my dad either. I, I love my mom and I love my dad. If I have a good relationship with them, there's a long story, so much involved with this, but um, I'm passing no judgment on them. So if anybody hears this and knows my family, I love them. <laughs> but, I, and I mean that, I do. I've, I've forgiven and forget, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my parents both had issues growing up with their life. And so there were some things that they brought to the family. And so it's just... Well, to, to kind of wrap this all up and put a pretty bow on it, I'm going to ask you both to answer a question. And it may be a difficult question. Um, so I'll let... Adrian, go first since she's younger. You know, brain is brain is sharp, right? <laughs> if if you could tell any biological child that is in a home where they are taking foster children, what would your words be to them as to maybe they have the anxiety of these kids coming, or maybe they feel like they're going to be neglected as biological children because these other children have have needs. What what words of encouragement would you give the biological children in foster homes? My first thought, and I don't, maybe it's not encouraging, but my first thought is, what if that were you? You know, like when you really think about it, if you didn't have anywhere to go, and if the only thing stopping that house or something with someone that was just a little scared. And I understand that. That's completely fine. People are scared. But what would you want them to do for you or, you know, anyone else, your friends? Because I've had friends that have needed homes multiple times. Don't be scared. Well, you're going to be for a little bit, but just talk, you know, express how you feel to your parents. And if you don't feel like you can do it to your parents, there's other people. If you go to church, you know, pastors or even your friends or your friends' family, you know, just someone. But my experience personally has not been bad. I absolutely love it, and I would do it a million times over. So do you ever see yourself being a foster parent? That, I don't know. Yeah. I think I would be involved in some sort of way, maybe just an adoptive parent, just because, like, you know, the give and take, the bag and forth, that's— that's kind of rough, but at the end of the day, you know, I can't let, like my mom says, I can't let my feelings or my emotions get in the way of what someone else needs or deserves. You know, I still need to put myself out there so that they have what they need. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you the question, what encouragement would you give to foster parents or even those who may be considering to be foster parents? I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to make this like a super religious thing or whatever, but I mean, and, and honestly, I don't. For me, in my house, I can't speak for everybody, but if it, 
if it wasn't for God giving me the strength, I honestly don't know that I could do it. I mean, it is that challenging at times. I'm not going to sit here and say it's all rainbows and it's all beautiful. It's definitely worth it. I would not ever want to go back and change it. I think it's a, I'm so blessed that we got to do this. But I do think that you you need a foundation with Jesus and you need him and you need a support family. You need to have a church wrap their arms around you or other foster homes that you can, you know, embrace you whenever you're going through hard times because it it's so helpful whenever you feel like it's kind of isolating to be a foster parent at times and so it's so helpful to have friends or family that you can kind of have that intermingle people that understand what you're going through and support you through hard times and so I would just say to definitely interact with other people that are doing this Um, stay positive stay strong and understand that even on the worst days when I lay my head down at night, I'm still, there's still so much more positive than there is negative. I mean, in my worst days, I still wouldn't change it. Right. You know, you had said that on your worst days, you would still do it again. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember that on our worst days, it's still probably so much better for the child in our home. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what they've come to. And, yep. and and what I've heard you both say, and I agree with, is that community and support is so important, not just in foster or adoptive care, but in anything that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think God created man to be alone. We need no, each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I uh, appreciate you both coming today and telling your story. And um uh, if you want, which you don't, you don't have to. But if somebody wanted to contact you, is there a way, a way that they could do that? You could contact me at uh, my email account. It's Tamisha Baxter at yahoo.com. and that's T as in Tammy, A, M as in Mary, E I S H A Baxter B A X T E R at yahoo.com. All right, and we'll put that email in the description of this. Uh, podcast. And once again, we thank you for being here today. Of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find all of my social media links at thedocbrian.com. And of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Once again, thank you, ladies, for, for sharing your story. Thanks thank for you. having us here. No problem. We'll talk to you later. Goodbye.